So we need to make sure we're extra intentional about creating those spaces online that let us feel that sense of energy, that sense of optimism, that sense of hope, that sense of accomplishment that we feel when we, you know, go walk a door knocking packet and come back to the field office and, you know, tell stories about all the conversations we had. Um, we've got to do that and make that real and tangible and felt in the Zoom world. And that's really, really hard. In summer and fall 2020, as racial justice protests flooded cities across the country and our local, state, and federal governments continually failed to contain the COVID-19 pandemic, the Yes on 2 campaign was trying to ramp up a statewide ranked choice voting field campaign. The problem is all face-to-face contact had stopped and everything the campaign had planned for field, going door-to-door talking to voters, hosting ranking events at bars, fairs, and restaurants, came to a screeching halt. How do you adapt your field campaign, the most immediate contact most voters will have with your campaign, to a remote-only operation? Welcome to the December 2021 episode of RCV Clips, the long-awaited final episode of our Ranked Choice Voting in Massachusetts trilogy. The point of a campaign is to win. There are a million things that go into making that win possible, but the goal is simple get the most votes. To get those votes, campaigns need three things, a message, money, and minutes. These are all deeply interconnected. A good message, an obvious problem, and a compelling solution draws in money. Money means you can hire staff and get your message out in front of people, and staff make the most of the time, the minutes, you have to run a campaign by getting your message out on as many channels as possible, by organizing volunteers, by contacting your voters. The Yes on 2 campaign started in 2016 with an idea and some people. In just four years, the organizers took that idea through the Massachusetts State House and turned it into the biggest statewide RCV campaign in the U.S. Greg, Liz, and everyone else recruited thousands of volunteers, and by 2020, Yes on 2 was a statewide campaign with full-time staff. They had grand plans for a statewide field campaign, with voters going door-to-door and hosting local events to teach voters about ranked-choice voting. Every campaign begins with uh, writing a field plan, which is essentially saying, how many voters do we need to contact by election day? And then, you know, how many are we going to contact each week? It usually starts slower and ramps up because you have more volunteers later. Um, And then, you know, how are you know, what's the plan for recruiting all these volunteers? What is the cycle of events that we do every week? Like, how, when are we going to have local team meetings? All of that stuff, right? All of, the, all of the, the, the things that you're building into your field program start with a field plan. That's Kobe Yank Jacobs, former organizing director for Yes on 2. Educating voters about ranked choice voting was at the heart of the fieldwork the Yes on 2 campaign had planned. Teaching voters about ranked choice voting and about how it changes how politicians campaign worked wonders for the organizers in the early days. That's the light bulb moment that Liz Popolo talked about in episode one. We call it the light bulb moment when we're talking to someone and that light in their eyes where they go, oh yeah. The goal was to recreate those light bulb moments across the Commonwealth of Massachusetts by modeling the campaign off of the successful 2016 campaign for ranked choice voting in Maine run the standard field campaign tactics with a mix of door-to-door canvassing, phone banking, and text banking, but also get people together in bars, at restaurants, at community events to hold ranking parties. These parties where people would try a few different beers or some appetizers or whatever else, rank them on a ranked choice ballot, 
then show the results to everyone there were a great way to educate people about ranked choice, to persuade voters, and to draw in more volunteers and donors. The standard field campaign runs out of dozens or hundreds of local offices scattered across a state, a city, or a county. These offices tend to be in that one abandoned storefront in a strip mall, it might even still say Circuit City on the facade. Field offices are the beating heart of a campaign, buzzing with energy. Staff and volunteers are always around helping out, getting to know one another, pouring themselves into this campaign. They're all completely fired up about. These field offices are where canvassers get dispatched to go door-to-door in neighborhoods nearby, to meet voters, and to get a sense of where people stand on the campaign. People show up to these offices, get trained, grab a clipboard and some literature, aka lit, and go canvass their turf. Field organizers also put together phone banks and text banks where people get together and call or text potential supporters. And it all comes out of these community center campaign offices. The vast majority of campaigns in 2020 abandoned field offices and door-to-door canvassing out of an abundance of caution for their staff, for their volunteers, and for the voters those campaigns wanted to reach. Yes on Two was no different. I'll pass it back to Kobe to talk more about this. We need to just put all of those in-person activities and that whole in-person field plan on hold and basically rewrite our whole program and how we're going to have an effect um, virtually. Um, And it sounds pretty, I don't want to say normal now, but like we're all used to like jumping on Zoom calls and doing all the things we used to do in our lives on Zoom, right? It might be that you go to your religious services now on Zoom and you're used to that. And it might be that you go to your book club on Zoom and you're used to that. And it might be that you come uh, volunteer with Yes on Two virtually and, uh, and you're used to that now. But like at the time, actually figuring that stuff out was really, really hard. Um, And it was hard to figure out some basic things like, you know, when you have a bunch of people in a meeting, normally in a field office, what you might do is you might say, all right, these people are on that team and these people are on that team. You go into the other room and do your planning and we'll be in our room and do our planning. Or, you know, these people need training. These people already know how to use the phone banking system. So um, let's have split up to the opposite end of the room. All of a sudden in the Zoom world, you have to figure out like how to manage volunteer traffic on a Zoom call, which sounds easy, but like it's actually kind of hard, like using the breakout function and figuring out, okay, who on this call needs training and how do we get them into the other room so that way they're in a setting where they can ask a lot of questions and they're not interrupting other people. There's a lot of stuff that at the time, just like you don't really know how you're going to transfer all this stuff into the online world. The simple fact is COVID-19 limited the campaign's field options. They held no in-person events, had no field offices, and did no door-to-door canvassing. Instead, they poured all their energy into hosting virtual events. They held a kickoff event on Zoom in early September and held regular phone banking and text banking events throughout the fall. The campaign tried to spice these events up. They had endorsers like Senator Elizabeth Warren and Representative Ayanna Presley kick off phone banking events to fire up volunteers and keep people engaged. But some serious challenges remained. And so the thing that COVID did is it mixed it so the, the thing you're going to be doing the most is, is phone banking. And it's re, it was really important. It's really important in general, but it's especially important to filter up feedback from volunteers about the conversations that they're having, um, you know, up so that way you're actually getting a sense of what's happening on the ground. That's not just the support scores and the numbers and all of that stuff. Um, and so I got on the phone banks every once in a while and would actually just do the calls myself too. So that way we're 
hearing volunteer feedback that I also am hearing it because the one thing that's a little that you have to kind of parse through with volunteer feedback, right, is that if, if, the, if the group of voters you're calling, what you'd call the target universe, is what we would say is more persuadable. So let's say you move out of the people who are super likely to, to support you and you move them this next week into a universe of people, a target universe of people who's a little bit more on the fence, the volunteer feedback is invariably going to go more negative, right? People are going to go, well, oh, I had some more, you know, frustrating conversations. And of course you are because you're moving into the group of people who aren't super likely to support you. And so one thing that's good to balance that out is you always want to take in the volunteer feedback, but then also hopping on the phone yourself, getting a sense of the conversations because you have the, the, the broader context for what kind of voters you're, you're calling um, is really good. And what you found is essentially that in the field, so I've had literally thousands of conversations with a clipboard about ranked choice voting, that light bulb moment, um, that moment where you see someone's eyes change uh, and they go, oh my God, that makes so much sense. Um, that wasn't happening as frequently on the phones, you know, and that makes sense. Um, but the reason is, is because it's simultaneously visual, right? Showing someone a sample ballot really, really helps because people see how simple it is. And then Secondly, it, it actually, I think, does have something to do with the, the human connection over the clipboard, how, how easy that makes it to, to shift someone. Um, and so the data might be saying, all right, we're getting X number of ones and twos and threes every night on the phone. Um, again, support scores are highest is number one. So your, your biggest supporters are number one. Um, you might be getting data that's telling you good things, but the uh, the sort of enthusiasm level of the people who end up in your number one category is a little bit different if you're capturing them over the phone than if you're capturing them in person, specifically with this issue. I think this issue is 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 an issue that'll kind of mess with your data in terms of the enthusiasm level. So that, that I think, was, you know, one of the major challenges. Getting that clear data, the information from across the state that tells a campaign where they stand with voters, was simply harder to do with a phone and text-banked-focused field campaign. Voters were harder to contact and harder to connect with. It was a struggle to break down barriers and build trust with skeptical voters to get to that light bulb moment. COVID catalyzed a disconnect, a disconnect between campaigns and their voters, and it gave those campaigns an extra layer of challenge to connect with their staff and with their volunteers. There is something special about being in person with people that is not recreated, is not recreated on Zoom. And... Um, we just have to live with that fact. I don't think we're ever going to like recreate that special sense of spontaneity um, because nothing in the Zoom world is spontaneous. But we do have to make sure that when people are doing the really hard work of improving democracy or winning elections or whatever they're doing, um, some of the payoff of that is feeling a part of a big community. And um, some of the payoff of that is is like, you know, getting to know people who care about the same things that you do. Um, by virtue of being in a field office together. And so we need to make sure we're extra intentional about creating those spaces online that let us feel that sense of energy, that sense of optimism, that sense of hope, that sense of accomplishment that we feel when we, you know, go walk a door knocking packet and come back to the field office and, you know, tell stories about all the conversations we had. Um, we've got to do that and make that real and tangible and felt in the Zoom world. And that's really, really hard.
Question 2 got certified for the Massachusetts ballot on July 10th, 2020, 115 days before Election Day. On August 3rd, 93 days before Election Day, Yes on 2 brought in Kobe and his boss Brian to energize the field operation for the campaign. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic, Massachusetts permitted all voters to vote by mail and sent out absentee ballot applications to all registered voters. Voters began receiving mail ballots in early October, meaning Yes on 2 had only 59 days from August 3rd before voters would start casting ballots. The staff and volunteers of Yes on 2 worked night and day to make this campaign work, to make do with the limitations of the pandemic, to make sure they reached as many voters as possible. In the end, though, it wasn't enough. At the end of the election, 1,549,919 voters voted yes on question two, and 1,877,447 voted no. The campaign lost by 327,528 votes, by nine points. The results were certified on November 25th, 2020. Yes on two failed. So why did the campaign lose? This podcast was never meant to be a campaign autopsy of the Yes on 2 campaign, and the interviews conducted for this series are not enough to conduct one. I'll briefly walk through some of the major external factors at play, the ones the campaign really couldn't control, but this is far from a definitive accounting of the campaign. And let's say first that based on numbers alone, the loss can't come down to field. Field campaigns can swing 2-5% to of votes, but Yes on 2 lost by 9. Here's the basic external factors at play in Massachusetts in 2020. A presidential election in the United States' most polarized political environment since the Civil War, due to heightened racial tensions escalating for at least 4 years, if not 8 or 12 years, supercharged due to multiple instances of police brutality against people of color, primarily black Americans, in the spring and summer, a pandemic further polarizing politics, a shortened campaign season due to the expansion of vote-by-mail and early voting, a stable political dynamic in Massachusetts, overall high political satisfaction for voters in Massachusetts. It's possible to look at all of these factors and see both upsides and downsides for the campaign. Presidential elections have built-in high turnout, so ballot measure campaigns just need to focus on getting voters on their side and can focus less on getting people out to the polls in the first place. But higher turnout also means you need to reach more voters, and voters who haven't heard of a ballot measure tend to vote against them. Escalating polarization means voters may desperately want something like ranked choice voting that could help us have more constructive conversations about race and politics during campaign season. But maybe voters feel as politics escalates that messing around with how we elect people is a risk they don't want to take when things already feel unstable nationally. Ironically, Massachusetts politics felt pretty stable to most voters there, according to recent polls. Compared to the chaos nationally, Massachusetts seemed calm, so voters felt there was no need to change their political system for a problem they didn't see locally. There's much more to say than I can cover in a digression in a podcast episode, but suffice to say, 2020 turned out to be a challenging environment for the Yes on 2 campaign. The Yes on 2 was just one RCV campaign in 2020, and all the other ranked choice voting campaigns won last year. Alaska adopted ranked choice voting statewide. Albany and Eureka, California, Boulder, Colorado, and Bloomington and Minnetonka, Minnesota 
all adopted ranked choice voting for their local elections. Just as there's countless stories and lessons to be told out of Massachusetts, each of these victories deserves focus and reflection. Albany in particular is really exciting. It's the first adoption of proportional ranked choice voting for a city council in more than 70 years. And Massachusetts still has things to celebrate. East Hampton implemented ranked choice voting for the first time this fall in 2021. Cambridge, Massachusetts celebrated the 80th anniversary of their proportional ranked choice voting elections this fall. And Amherst, Massachusetts will be implementing ranked choice voting, both single winner and proportional, in 2023. Organizers in Massachusetts have refocused their work on local adoptions and are making serious progress across the state. I'm sure we'll soon be able to have another series like this, maybe even out on a regular schedule, about the movement for ranked choice voting in Massachusetts. This series was designed as a way to examine the impact of COVID-19 on campaigning in 2020. The assumption was that meant just looking at how signatures got gathered and how field campaigns change. As I learned more, it became obvious that these podcast episodes would only scratch the surface of what it meant to campaign uh, in a pandemic and what it means to run a campaign generally. Those changes to signature gathering and to field campaigns were the most visible, the most tangible things that changed because of the pandemic, but far more is going on beneath the surface. Since 2020, field operations have adapted to the pandemic. We've returned to in-person organizing, now with vaccinated volunteers, wearing masks, staying socially distant, and staying well sanitized, too. Signature gathering has returned to the physical world. It looks like the 2020 experiment with digital signature gathering will stay an experiment for now, though bills pending in a number of states may make digital signature gathering permanent. Unfortunately, no bills are pending in Massachusetts as of the recording of this episode. 2020 was a tumultuous year in American politics, to say the least. 2021 has been at least as chaotic, and 2022 promises no changes. The work being done to fulfill the promise of our democracy, work on voting rights, on gerrymandering, on voting method reform like ranked choice voting, will, must, has to continue. And luckily, we have a constellation of civil rights and good government organizations across the country, in every state, in our backyards, putting in the work to fight for our democracy, regardless of the barriers that might get thrown in their way, like a global pandemic. So many issues are almost in a way downstream from elections. And so when you look upstream to where a problem is occurring, whether it be hyperpolarization or... Uh, the sort of logjam in politics that folks will describe where, where legislation just doesn't move. Um, that has impacts on every issue, whether it's criminal justice, whether it's environment, whether it's um, you know equal rights. So much of it stems back to election reform that we have really tried to keep that that central to how we look at all of these things as interconnected pieces of a puzzle. In the worst ways, when we talk about tribalism, we say politics is a team sport and, and we mean it sort of in a derogatory way. I think there's also a positive frame for that, where politics is a team sport in that, um, you know, the door you knock on or don't knock on tomorrow um, is highly unlikely to actually win or lose the race. But if you don't do it um, and enough people make the same decision as you, we are going to lose the race. And so. I think, you know, tying up your shoelaces, grabbing clipboard and going and knocking on a door is the most 
hopeful act there is, um, whether you're knocking for a candidate or an issue, um, because it's saying that you realize you're a part of something bigger um, and that you know, you're willing to sacrifice your Saturday afternoon uh, for the sake of something uncertain, but something that will feel really sweet when you win. And now for this month's final round, where we share an interesting bit of trivia, useful tidbit, or just something we thought was cool for folks to know about ranked choice voting. Here's Renee Rojas with this month's final round. Did you know that New York City voter education material was made available in 13 languages? Rank the Vote NYC provided ranked choice voting handouts in Arabic, Bangla, Chinese, and Simplified Chinese, English, French, Haitian Creole, Khmer, Korean, Nepali, Russian, Spanish, and Vietnamese. This major step forward for RCV language accessibility makes it this month's final round. Thank you for joining us today for our December 2021 RCV clip. This is a monthly segment produced by the Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center. Follow us on Twitter at RCV Resources, on Facebook and LinkedIn at Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center, and check out our website, rcvresources.org, for more RCV resources. You can find our show anywhere you get podcasts. Please take some time to subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast, too. The theme music for this series is Jester by Poddington Bear. Thanks to Greg Dennis, Jim Henderson, Liz Popolo, Joel Paul, and Kobe Yank Jacobs for sitting down with me for these episodes. And thanks to all the staff and volunteers on ranked choice voting campaigns across the country for your hard work to improve our democracy. Until next time, I'm Chris Hughes on behalf of the Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center.